You're listening to the Business Secret Podcast. The podcast is a chance for some of Wales' finest upcoming and established business owners to share the story of their business journey. Hosted by the team here at Penguin, our guests talk in depth about how they got to where they are today, offering invaluable advice on marketing, challenges, and the highs and lows of life as a business owner. If you like what you hear, then don't forget to review us on Apple Podcasts and leave us a comment across our socials. You can download your free copy of the book, The Business Secret, direct from our website on www.penguinwealth.com. The book is written for business owners by business owners, offering invaluable tips on time management, work-life balance, how to pick the right team, and so many more activities and tips to get you on the right track. So welcome to the first ever Christmas special of the Business Secret Podcast. We're here with Penguin. Delighted to welcome our first MBE, uh, Miss Jean Church. Uh, most people who are listening to this, I'm sure, will know Jean Church. She's a legend in the Welsh business community. Currently doing a lot of work with Institute of Directors, among many other things that I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, so we're going to dive straight in and start to pick Jean's brains and hopefully share some insights with uh, all our all our listeners. So Jean, um, you've done a number of things over your career. What would you say has been the highlight? Oh my gosh, in my career. In your career. In my well, in it, the highlight has to be the MBE, doesn't it, for services to business? How did that come about? I'm not sure. Someone nominated me from somewhere. Um, but my understanding is that it's awarded for services that you give to a certain sector or certain achievements that you you uh, might accrue. And I think probably mine has been that I've worked through a number of pro bono roles over the last number of years. I've helped mentor people in business, particularly women who work on boards for the first time and women who aspire to be sitting on a board but don't really believe they have the capability. So I think probably the award is a combination of things that you've done through quite a number of years. Yeah. Does someone put you forward? Does yes. someone right, okay. Do we know who it was? No. Alright, so you never know. No. Okay. And what was it like meeting Her Majesty? I met Prince Charles. He right. was the one who did the investiture. It right. was brilliant because I've met him on a number of occasions. Right. And what was funny was prior to going in, you're obviously versed on what the protocol looks like. So you're told that you don't shake the prince's hand when you stand in front of him. Right. You shake his hand when he leaves because the gesture for you, your time is up, is they proffer their hand for you to shake the hand. But of course I've met him on so many occasions that I walked up and automatically went to shake his hand first thing. So I thought, oh, you numpty, why have you done that right at the beginning of the session? But it it was amazing. My three daughters came with me. So I would like to thank whoever nominated me because it was an amazing day, an amazing couple of days too. So I imagine you've been a mentor and a confidant to many people over over your journey. What's the what's the thing you find you help people with the most? Is it sharing your wisdom? Is it helping them understand where they're trying to go? What's, what's your secret? It's a bit of both, really, and I guess that's what time gives you is an opportunity to reflect on your knowledge, your experiences, what's worked well, what you've failed at and how you've learned to fail better, because I think people shouldn't be afraid of failure. One of the things that I always say is if you get to your dotage and you turn around to someone and say, what if I had, then you've lost an opportunity. 
So to try along the way, if you fail, what does that matter? So I guess I give them a combination really of, first of all, you have to understand the person. You have to understand what they're seeking to achieve and understand who they're working with, what that team looks like, what their um, time frame looks like, and also whether they really believe in where they want to go. Okay. How, how do you know? You can tell. Yeah. You can hear passion in people's voice. You can tell by their eyes are engaged, their eyes are sparkling when they talk about something. It's like a child at Christmas, isn't it? When... Well, I don't, I don't suppose it's just Christmas these days. It's most days children get presents. But when you see that something in front of them that they really and truly want, then everything about them, their body language, the um, discussion, it's, it just is that composite of things that makes you feel you can hear the will to achieve and the will to want to succeed. And sometimes I've met people who have been very um, in a bad place. <coughs> Sorry. They might be uh, really suffering because the business is suffering. They might be suffering from personal circumstances. I remember working with a board once and we had a chair, fantastic chair, but for two or three meetings, he'd suddenly turned to become what I can only describe as a as a kind of dictator, which was totally opposite to the way that he'd always operated. And everyone sat there, heads down at the meetings, came away. So I wrote to everyone and said, we can't have this. We have to resolve what's going on here because it's such a, a shift in personality, mm. such a shift in, in the way things are being managed. So a number of us got together and they voted me as to be the person to speak to the individual. So I had a chat and we found out that he'd been diagnosed with a very serious illness and in fact died within three months of that, that conversation. So it was obvious that whatever he was doing, he was on in a, in a kind of automotive state, you know, uh, behaving as an automaton, going through the motions, but really not not paying attention or being part of the real world at that stage yeah. his mind was elsewhere mm. and that's the kind of thing that that happens you know when you see difference in behavior so i i've mentored people who are in all kinds of places I've, how did that first happen and what, what 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 when did you start to become a mentor was it after a number of years experience it was it because <laughs> you started offering your services was it people just came were attracted to you because of your nature and then you found yourself becoming more called upon it started from a place where I almost gave up a career that was beginning to make things happen for me. It was my own personal experience. I worked for a very challenging director and obtusely he saw a lot of, um, a lot of things in me that I hadn't seen myself so he knew I could achieve, he knew I could stretch myself more than I was doing. But he was a very difficult person to work with. And certainly, um, if you talk about man management skills, I don't think he even understood what the word meant. Now, that's a politically incorrect term, because I shouldn't say man management anymore. But in those days, that's what we called it. So the ability to manage people and get the best out of them. 
And we lost a number of really good people because his own likes, dislikes, tastes meant that they just, he wouldn't have them working with him. And I remember him asking me to do a project for him, which took me about four weeks to get the project together, really proud of the work that I'd done. And the morning I presented it, I said to him, oh, I, don't, I don't want to meet you at that time because I know you're going to be focused on other things. I want to make sure that when I give this to you and I explain what I've done, that you're really able to listen and we can have quality time together. It didn't happen, he wouldn't change it. Once he'd made his decision, that's that's the time, that's the venue. And I was about an hour and a half in and I'd got to page three because the interruptions, the constant, do this, do that, do the other two other people. And so in the end, I slammed the books together, which was totally against me, my way of doing things, and walked out of the office. Found myself, my PA drove me in my car because I was so upset, I was distraught, because this was a culmination of things. My PA drove me to the bridge, the first seven bridge. I had a sandwich on the first seven bridge. You're not going to tell you, you're going to jump. No, no, calm down and said, right, drive us back in. I'm going back in, I'm going to collect my things and then I'll decide which way I go. Whether I go to tribunal, what, what I do, but I am certainly not coming this far in my career to have it wiped away and I've had enough. So obtusely, I had tried to be someone I wasn't. I tried to be, I ranted and raved. I held meetings where I was an absolute dictator and that wasn't me. So the angst, the inner angst that that had caused and my trying to keep everyone else on an even keel. So I'd make sure I'd, I'd be at the venue where he was visiting before he was so that I could prepare the managers. Managers were frightened to death of this chap. It was dreadful. And so over time, I learned to manage people and I suddenly realised that I was doing things, copying the chaps who were around in those days because most of the senior people were chaps but I could do things my way mm. which was helping people understand how to manage difficult people identifying what things were the triggers to change those you know what could be a good meeting and that was when I learned the art of reflection so if something was going really well why did it go so well what was it I did how did I do it? Was there anything in the way it was set up? Was it the place in which I held the meeting? Was it the way that we opened the meeting? Was it the content? So that was where I learned reflection and that was where I'd started um, subliminally mentoring these people who just couldn't work with this with this chap. And is that something you still practice today? Yes. Yeah. So is that locking yourself away after a certain type of meeting or a certain amount of time a day, a week? A lot of it now, because I've practiced it for so long, can be when I'm in the car going home. Right. So whereas it used to be once a week, it can be any time. Yeah. So if something's gone well, if something's not gone so well, maybe when I'm driving back, I'll, I'll reflect on it. Maybe if I'm home and I'm you know, having my tea or something, I'll reflect on it then. Do you document it anywhere or is it just yes. a mental process? Yeah, no, oh, okay. I do document it. If, if I can understand what little trigger has changed and why that changed, then I document that. Because if I write it down, I will remember it. 
So it's our first gem from uh, Jean Shirt. Reflect every day. I'm. I agree. I, I we were talking about on a previous podcast with someone about um, not recognizing the positives that you achieve every day. People sometimes think they haven't done anything all day. So I use a little app called Win Streak where every day I just take a couple of minutes to record all successes of the day whether that's personal or business then you can look back if you need that boost to remind yourself what's done but I will certainly um yeah I don't, I don't think I reflect enough so I will certainly be taking that one away thank you Jean you mentioned earlier on in that piece then about um obviously when you're looking at mentoring and when you've helped people about helping people recognize their failures and learning from them you've done a number of things over your career what's been your biggest failure or greatest failure that you've learned from and there have been an, a number um I don't think you can grade failure really, can you? Because it's there's a number of things in, in failure. It's either that you fail to hit the bottom line or things that are the rudimentary things of running a business or there's the internalisation of failure that sometimes you think, I should have achieved that and I didn't or I should have done that better and I didn't. But I guess when I, I look at business and and when one of my biggest failures was in business was I um, bought a franchise and bear in mind I'd been used to working in corporate life and at senior positions you know what it's like you call in your FD you call in the lawyer you call in the HR director so those specialists are at your fingertips but I'd had a lot of experience in my early career of volume recruitment because I worked in retail, so we were opening new stores. And at that time, we were recruiting anything up to 300 people for one store. Right. So personnel was the role that I'd had when I first started building my career. So that expertise kind of made me believe that I could buy a franchise in recruitment and make it happen. I believed in myself, I believed in my skills, People knew of me, and I had a you know really uh, good reputation for being a good personnel individual kind of thing. So I bought this franchise, but it was working in the placement of financial directors and lawyers. Right. Wrong. I'd not spent any time looking at. I had no network. So I bought the franchise, set it up, working here in South Wales. I'd been in corporate life. I had no business network. I hadn't belonged to the IOD because that was actually when I was invited to join the IOD when I bought this franchise. Mm. <clears throat> and in those days, you had to be invited to join. Um, and I think I had one placement, which was a lot of money. That one placement was almost half a year's salary. Mm. But I just did not understand how to network properly, how to pitch up these, and cold calling, goodness me. So what did I find out? I was not a salesperson. Okay. My biggest failure. Yeah. What would you do different? I would certainly research the market, understand the sectors that I intended to recruit in, build my client network up, build my, um, that, business-to-business -business network but I certainly would do a hell of a lot of research which I didn't do at that time. Sounds like you took a big gamble there, would you say that was your biggest risk or have you taken bigger risks than that along the way? Oh I've taken bigger risks than that but of a different type. Can you share one of those? Um, 
I've taken risks where I've noticed we had a, a graduate join us in one company that I was in. He was um, on the autistic spectrum, but absolutely brilliant in figures, understanding. He could look at a diagram and say, oh, not sure, not sure that fits, really. Have you thought about this, this, this and this? And what had happened when we took him in as a graduate, we had placed him in, you know, given him a, a quick resume of the, of the business, what it was about, showed him around various departments, etc., and put him to work in a particular department, which bore no resemblance to what made him tick, what he really wanted to do. Mm. We did not use his recency of research and learning methodologies that he'd come out of university with. And we were having lunch in, in the canteen one day, and I started saying to him, you're not very happy, are you? No, not at all. So talk to me, tell me what's happened, tell me about your experience. From that conversation, I said, right, don't care what your manager says, we're gonna have, we're gonna move this, we're gonna do different things. So I don't want you to do what you're thinking of doing. You work with me, I'll work with you, and we'll see if we can move this on. Let's just give it three months and see what we can achieve. So we designed a new graduate programme, which was eventually um, implemented by the organisation. And he became one of the senior directors in the organisation. Wow. But when I said what I wanted to do, I was categorically told, if you don't turn this round in three months, that individual leaves, whether you whether he wants to or not. Wow. Congratulations on that. So, yeah, that, that it, and it's great when you can see that. Mm -hmm. When you can, and that's how you learn. The other thing I would say is, never switch yourself off from learning. It doesn't have to be in a formal environment. But when you're talking to people, and I think that's one of the values I've uh, gleaned from the IOD. There are so many fantastic specialists with thousands of years of experience when you put them all together. Mm. It's absolutely wonderful that you can tap into their expertise and perhaps not make the mistakes that you would had you not had those conversations. Fascinating. Never switch off learning, I think, is a massive one. A lot of people feel they get to a point where they know it all and don't develop themselves, don't keep reading, don't listen to podcasts, whatever it might be. So I think that will take that as a lesson number two. Um, just staying on the mentor theme for a bit longer, we've always had a mentor here supporting us and we talk about people should have mentors in, in the book. At what point do you think it's important for business owners to engage with a mentor if they've never done it before? Probably from day one. Okay. Can you expand on that? Yeah. If, if you, and I guess this is something that People like myself who believe they understand business. My weakest area is my finance. So we're just in the process of setting up the new business. So we have to get solid financial specialist advice. Mm -hmm. If we don't, then wherever we go, whatever we do, it won't happen. I don't understand the funding arena. I can understand how to fill in the forms, understand the process but I don't understand it sufficiently to optimize you know, 
tax relief or whatever you're looking at because that's not my specialist area and just to be clear because i don't want people to think that we're talking about financial advice here with in the space of penguin no no we're no talking about funding no. in terms of yep. money from a bank money from a lender yep. crowd absolutely yep. setting a new business up not not penguin at all um and what i would say is if you don't have the specialists to support you when you start a new business then you have this fantastic idea but ideas without action are worth nothing. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I say is, in terms of mentoring, I might have been around a long time. I might have you know, a wealth of um, knowledge in terms of contacts, etc. I might have a wealth of knowledge in how to manage people. But I can sometimes get into a, well, if I do this, I'll get that. And of course, time cha- changes. You talked about podcasts. I can't be bothered with podcasts. The last time I used what people would, I say, loosely describe as a podcast was when I was doing some um, self-learning tapes. Because I used to drive 56,000 miles a year in one job, Mm. I invariably had tapes on and I'd be listening to the tapes in the car. So that's driving self-learning stuff. And that's what podcasts have become. That's what they've become, yeah, but very loosely. So for me, I haven't listened to podcasts until you invited me to do this podcast when I listened to yours. And listening to your very first one, Frank, Mm -hmm. who's also done the forward for for your book, some of the things that he was talking about, I thought, my goodness me, I've missed that. I missed that well, what if I do this, that scenario setting, that sometimes when you're in the top of an org or at the top of an organisation, it's very lonely. You do obviously have your staff and you can be confidential with your staff, but there's always those things that you want to spin off someone that you can't put at their door, if you like, because it's too much of a risk for them to take on. And so I think one of the things I hadn't done was engaged mentors early enough on in my career. Even when you were in corporate life, or are we talking now when you've moved into... And that's when I've, since I've moved away from corporate life. Would you have, when you were in corporate life, would there have been the opportunity to get someone to help you in certain roles, or did that not exist in corporate life? It would have, had I been a better time manager. But because of the demands of the business, um, I was also um, divorced, so I had three children. So there were lots and lots of pressures and yes, I'd come across the 80-20 Pareto rule. Did I practice it? Some of the things in your book. You know, if I'd had those snippets and practiced those snippets, because we can all say lots of things, but unless we take the action, it, the, the benefit won't materialize. Yeah. And one of the things that, that I learned um, in one of the courses that I did was there was a just one strap line. If it's to be, it's up to me. Which means that if you're going to make it happen, it's up to you to make it happen. So mentoring was something I should certainly have taken up and didn't. So from what I've heard there then with the new business, you've got someone coming in to be a sort of a mentor in terms of finance and how to raise funding to help you get this going, I guess. We're putting that package together now. Once that's happened, do you, will you then have someone else, an NED or a personal mentor for you or others in the business to help with the business going forward? Absolutely. Okay. And when when I was, um, when I, I managed that franchise, 
very lonely because it was me on my own. I just joined the IOD and then I took the certificate and diploma in company direction with the IOD, which are the first two steps you have to take before you can um, apply to become a charter director. When I learned for the first time what the responsibilities of a director were, and when I thought, God, I didn't know any of this. When I subsequently went in to talk to boards where people would say, look, my board's dysfunctional. Can you come in and have a look at it? And you say to them, so tell me what you know about your legal responsibilities as a director. It's amazing how many people have not a clue. So that kind of business information I didn't have at my my fingertips at all. Fascinating. Um, Okay, so you mentioned there 56,000 miles a year at one point, three kids divorced. We talk, we're big believers at Penguin and we talk about the book about work-life balance. What's your work-life balance journey been like over your career? If you spoke to my children, they'd say she's an out-and-out workaholic. Um, I do love something that keeps the brain ticking over. I gave up sport. I used to play a lot of netball until I was about 38, 39. Gave that up. Uh, My sport now is watching the rugby from a seat in the stand, hopefully. Um, But I have, my family is is steeped in rugby for, you know, generations. My grandchildren all play. They're all very, very sporty, apart from the girls. This is the three boys, not the two um, girls. But I guess um, my (laughs) my work-life balance in terms of energy, the last thing I did was the 90 kilometer walk on the Great Wall of China for charity. Wow. So I did some training for that. That's nearly 10 years ago now. Found that really difficult and said to myself, you need to get out. You need to keep this walking up. You need to keep this exercise up. Sorry, business took over. So with all the roles that I undertake, I don't spend very much time on my own leisure, apart from my children and I will go out for a meal or attend a show or theatre or whatever at least once every six weeks, probably. And that goes in the diary and that becomes sacrosanct? That's it. Yeah, okay. Would you say, I mean, we keep having this internal debate about work-life balance and I, I'm kind of like you, I love what we do, keep thinking, keep doing, you know, keep the brain ticking. Do you see that changing anytime soon or are you still that engaged with what you're doing with the various roles you have? Well, I'm just... I am better. I do have more relaxation time now and more time. Every Friday is sacrosanct because that's my great-granddaughter's day. So I collect her from nursery. She's four. So that is one day when I do absolutely nothing other than my great-granddaughter. No sneaky check of the mobile? No sneaky check. And in fact, my mobile now is just my telephone. It doesn't have the link to my laptop, the link to my email addresses. It's my mobile telephone. And on a Friday, so I guess I'm, I'm you know, one-fifth of a five-day working week um, is absolutely phenomenal for me because it's usually a seven-day working week. So what do you do when she goes to school? Probably find something else to do. Work or will you keep it leisure? No, I want to keep it leisure. I think uh years ago we did a project when we looked at the way that uh, germany managed its potential retirees from business right 
and I can't remember the name of the company that we visited now, but we went out to have a look at what they were doing because their pension programme um, was really first class. But what they were doing was five years out from retirement, five years, people were given uh, one of the trainees within the organisation to work with. Right. Over that five years, they worked with a lot of the trainees, etc., they were given external work to do with other companies, entirely outside their field of expertise, but within their field of passion. So if they had a particular passion for something that didn't resonate with the business, that was no problem. Yeah. They could still spend this time. So over that five years, it culminated to the last day of employment. They were actually not doing anything. Wow. That was absolutely phenomenal. Mm. A lot of, that must have been big business, that's a lot of investment for someone to take, I would have thought. Oh, it was, yeah. yeah. But it was it was a really, really positive programme. And of course, many of those people who did retire went on to do other things anyway. Mm. Their experience, their value that they added into the society as a whole was brilliant. Mm. And I, I say, because I've tried to retire on three occasions, mm. so my claim to fame is I now have been resurrected more times than Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> so on that note then we talk a lot in the book about how people as business owners generally don't plan for their own financial freedom I've come away from this word retirement we've always been away from the word retirement over the last couple of years because I think it's about creating financial freedom so that you, you work if you want to and not because you have to have you consciously during your journey planned to make sure that at some point you could fully retire if you'd have wanted to and now you're doing it out of choice you see that's where age and experience mattered to me because when I first started back to work after having my children. I had a fantastic boss. He was absolutely brilliant. They introduced a pension scheme, which was voluntary in those days. And he said to me, you have to join this pension scheme. I said, I can't afford it. I've got three children. I can't afford it. He said, how much do you pay on, spend on makeup every week? How much do you spend on those stocking things. How much do you spend on clothes? You wouldn't get away with that nowadays. <laughs> Absolutely not. But in those days, he was trying to make me think about the things I was spending my money yeah. on. Yeah. So you have, you know, I had a, a, a finite <laughs> amount of disposable income that I could use for those leisure or, you know, um, really posh purchases in those yeah. days. Or what you felt were necessities at the time. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Until I realised that they weren't necessities. Mm. You know, I, I didn't need that second suit when I already had a suit that I could wear that yeah. was fine for purpose or fit for purpose. And he said to me, it's only this much per, per week out of your salary. Mm. You benefit because even if you stay with the, the organisation 10 years, you've still got the pot that you're putting in and he was much older than I at that stage so I joined the pension scheme and then um, and in those days they were final pension schemes yeah, salary, yeah, yeah. so people say those were the golden days May, maybe they were um, but then we had a, a share as you earn scheme appear mm -hmm. so of course this conversation was you need to join this I can't you need to join this because you know this this is the time to join at the beginning as the trajectory for the company is taking off and on the first payout I had was seven and a half thousand pounds 
I bought us a holiday and a new car. Oh, okay. I was hoping there was going to be a story of you reinvesting it in something. Uh, no, I haven't finished yet. Okay. I bought us a holiday and a new car. Yeah. And I had to put some in my savings. Why did I have to put it in my savings? Because my youngest daughter, when she had money given her, she would always put something aside, and my eldest. My middle one, unfortunately, was a bit like me. She would spend it all if she had it in her pocket. Yeah. But it was really that family thing that, you know, I thought, no, I've got to put a bit of this away. So that's how I started. Okay. So the, le the lesson for those listening, if you're not already, is make sure you are putting something away for yourself for the future. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Payday is save day. Day, absolutely, we're all for that. Um, and I think to be politically correct nowadays, we would ask you to look at the things you're spending, the Starbuckses and the, the eating out rather maybe than the makeup drawer and the, the socking drawer. <laughs> I don't think we can say that stuff anymore. Um, in the book we talk about the importance of recruiting the right people. Obviously you've been involved in recruitment in a number of ways, leading teams and then the franchises you kindly mentioned earlier. Have you got a fail-proof method now for recru recruiting, given your experience? I don't, think there's, I don't think there's a fail-proof method, is there? One of the best teams I ever put together was when I worked in cooperative retail. I knew two of the people that I brought in to work with me, but the other team were already there. Members of the team were already in situ. Um, and we needed to put a succession plan in place because one of the things I've always done in the last... 20 years is make sure that I within six months of joining an organization I like to have identified my successor wow. I think that's really positive because it keeps you on your toes that individual is nurtured do you let a person know yes okay. but it's over a period of time so it takes me about six months to really be certain and if that person wants to go and do their own thing of course they can but the pleasure is in seeing that, that realisation of where they're going. And you can put those development plans in for any member of your team, no matter. I mean, there were 35,000 staff across the region. You have like 44 direct reports, which was crazy. But nonetheless, they could all have personal development programmes and work together. So when you, you, when you recruit, I guess the first thing I would say, and having had the failure in the um, franchise is when you're recruiting in any organisation, make sure that you understand what the role specification looks like, what the person specification looks like. And in that, I mean what the behaviours and values of that individual need to look like. So how would you weed that out, Jinx? That's the, that's the challenge I think recruiters, uh, business owners faces. People turn up to an interview and they've got their game face on. Well, what, what key nuggets have you learned along the way to help people get beyond that that facade and find the real values what would you tips would you give i use some really quirky questions that are politically correct <laughs> <laughs> but i also use a competency framework that is is um embedded in in behavior we um i've used competency frameworks for about 40 years now so for those who might not have heard of a competency framework, can you give us that? It's, it's a framework that identifies what kind of behaviour you exhibit in achieving certain results and how you interact with people, um, what you expect from the business and the organisation, 
What are the values of the business? How would they say that their own values resonate with that business? And a lot can be gleaned if, when you're talk, particularly at senior level, if someone at interview doesn't say, what are your values? Then I would certainly introduce that into the conversation. Because even for Generation Z coming through, where their approach to work is, is far different, I think, to that of, of when I first started work, they seem to think of those you know, intrinsic values of what, what you stand talk. for uh, absolutely yeah so um, I use a competency framework for behavioural analysis I make sure that they've done some research and you would be amazed how many people sit in front of you and you say what do you know about the organisation um, well um, I know you were you know you're here and you've got this number of sat here but what do you know about the organisation would you believe in this day and age that some people don't even bother to look? Oh, I absolutely believe I've seen it, yes. Oh, right. So those kind of... Do they bring that kind of... Have they done the research? Do they know how to articulate their values? Can they ask the basic questions about the values of the organisation? Do they understand the vision and purpose of the organisation? Have they spoken to anyone before they came in for the interview? And someone else in your organisation, or someone who's been in the organisation, or someone who both. Right. Both. Yeah. And I remember going. Uh, someone, a headhunter, rang me for a particular job that I got, so I can't say which it was. <laughs> but they rang me, and I said, "Oh, I'm not sure about this. Never worked in that sector before." So what I'd really like to do is go in and spend a day in the organisation before I make my mind up, because. I don't know whether it's for me, don't know much about it. So I went and spent a day and the HR director of the organisation said, I'm not sure how we're going to manage this, Jean, because we've never had a conversation with anyone like this before. So it was new for them, but that was something they adopted thereafter. So they looked for people who would say, you know, can I spend some time with someone? Mm. And, and I'm talking about senior boards, yeah, yeah. but it, it's the same for any individual, no matter what level you are in an organisation. There must be that kind of passion and want to do the job. Yeah. I'm conscious that we're getting a number of downloads of these podcasts now, which is great. I'm conscious that we've you've talked a lot about senior level recruitment there. Can you give any top tips for someone who's about to take on their first role, get or take on their first employee where they need someone at? Let's assume it's not a senior level, it's just to come in and do a particular role. Any tips you can give them on, apart from maybe asking about their values, anything else you could share? I think they have to be sure that the person wants the job for the right reasons. Because if someone comes in and says, I'm working 20 hours a week, I need something to make my 18 hours up so that I've got a full-time job, that is not, not the correct way to go about things. Mm -hmm. So they still need to have that meaningful conversation with the individual. And if it's a small organisation where, you know, you might be a one-man band becoming a two-man band or maybe a three-girl band becoming a five-girl band. But at that stage, at that small um, level, you have to make sure that you can get on with that individual. And people say, you know, you should always never allow the halo you know, recency factor to take over. So if you've met someone and you think they're the best thing since sliced bread, don't be um, kind of carried away with the fact that they've achieved that one success 
and they're going to replicate that when they come to you. So dig a bit deeper, talk to them until you can have a chat as we are, because we've known each other for quite a while now. So I feel it's easy to speak with mm. you and to you. Thank you. So you do that when you're, you're taking on that one member of staff. Feel that you can have that conversation. Feel that if your backs are against the wall, you could rely on this person to be there with you. So if you're managing the lead, let's say it's a three-girl band, as you mentioned, and let's say they're taking on their first person, do you think there's not the challenge in those situations where the person on the other side of the table, maybe is the conversation is hard to flow because you know, this is their potential new boss, their potential new uh, manager? How do you get over that barrier, would you say? that's down to the boss isn't it okay and if you have a boss who and this again is where knowing yourself is really key because if you are the type of person who finds it difficult to speak to people then share that with the individual mm. there's nothing wrong in that i've worked with some brilliant people but making conversation was one of the hardest things that you could do as you become more experienced as a manager, you can understand that they may compartmentalise their role. So they'd rather get on, stuck in, do their role. And the conversation to them is kind of, oh, well, I, I don't really want to participate in that because it's not my style. So as a, as a manager, if you're not used to doing that, have someone in with you. Yeah. Have, it becomes the mentor thing again, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, have someone to sit in with you who can lead the conversation, who can begin to get that flowing conversation, and who is good at asking the penetrating questions. One of the things I used to say to a lot of people, I don't know, but I used to, say, what makes you angry? That came out of my experiences of working with people who were very dictatorial in their, their approach, because quite often, that kind of individual, the slightest thing, would trigger off you know, a conversation that really wasn't necessary. The tone wouldn't be correct. It certainly wouldn't engender any feeling of um, camaraderie. So I guess that comes through because if a person knows what makes them angry, what they get frustrated with, and you understand that, some of that might resonate with you. Yeah. I can just imagine now, I'm just thinking if you, you know, the new business you've mentioned, you're starting out and let's say you're interviewing for your first member and I happen to be the person applying for the job. If I've done a bit of research into who Jean Church is, I might be sat here very struggling to articulate because I'm trying to impress someone like you. So I was just trying to find out how you de-arm that and maybe in your new business, would you still be the person who sat opposite the table? Would you call someone else in or is there someone else in the business who could do that? No, it's a new business. So you'd be doing that? So I would be doing that. I could just imagine if I was sat opposite you, that might be a challenge. I think your skills obviously would help disarm me, but I just, I'm trying to see if there's anything we can give our listeners. Because I do feel, I, I've stepped out of the interviews in Penguin because I do feel when I was first doing them that I maybe there was that fear factor of, you know, that you're, they're the, you're the future boss, potentially. You can see that in an individual, though, can't you? Even oh, if you're not used to, Even if you're not used to recruiting. Absolutely. And so that is, in my view, the manager's responsibility to say... You know, we're both here. I have a need. You believe you can fulfill that need. Let's try as best we can to have a conversation that enables us both to find out about each other. So I guess my tip, biggest tip would be if you have someone who has a reputation, 
then and they are the manager, then disarm that individual by saying that you both have a need. You're there to fulfill a purpose. So you want them to be as challenging to you as you might be to them. And I, I you know, we've all been through when we try to ask the clever questions because we want to tie someone up. Always read it somewhere that that's the question to ask. Absolutely yeah. stupid. And you can see that people might have a, a, an array of questions that they've written the responses down to. And one of the things I always say to them is, let's put that to one side a minute. Let's just spend the first five minutes understanding each other. Shall I tell you why I've started the business? You tell me why you want to join me. What is it that makes you tick? What do you think our challenges would look like? So it's having that conversation up front. I just, I'm just in all of that, just that little gem of starting it by saying, I've got a need. You've got, let's try and have a conversation. I just wish I wish I talked to you about this 10 years ago. Mm. Gene, wow. I think uh, if you take nothing else from today's podcast, I think that's uh, fascinating when you are uh, interviewing. Uh, just starting to bring things to a close then, Gene, I'm conscious of your time. What three pieces of advice would you give to yourself if you were starting this journey all over again? Oh, well, I am starting the journey all over again. True, okay. Get the finance right. Okay, let's stay on that for a second. Then, if someone's starting, they're in employment at the moment, or they're freelancing, or whatever, and they are now going to create a business. What does that? What does that? What do you think that means? Then, what do they need to be thinking about? Think about getting a good accountant. If you are going into the funding arena, think about someone who knows the funding arena. So, getting the specialists that you know can. Um, help you through your weakest areas mm -hmm. that's the first thing I do is make sure I've got that kind of support make sure you've got your insurances right so don't start any venture without having insurance behind you you talk about just simple things like public liability key person key person, okay. key person public liability if you're a one-man band that's quite dangerous if you've got if you build up a good portfolio but you are the one working in the business and not on the business something happens to you in the early days things are going to go belly up so we're massive believers in that and obviously that's what we do and yeah the amount of businesses who haven't got something simple like that in place to ensure their family ensure the business ensure key people who are responsible for profit is horrendously scary in the South Wales. Well, I can only speak for South Wales, but yeah, huge, huge. Thank you for that. So and I didn't ask Jean to say that one just for the record. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> um, have, have you got an experience you've seen that you could link that to? Is that because you've seen something happen to someone, to some a business? No, but it's from the study that I did with IOD. Right. When we talked about, you know, different types of organisations, we had lots of case studies about what can and can't go wrong. Right. Um, how to... to protect yourself yeah, yeah. Um, and protect the, the people that you're going to take on this journey with you. So I guess it's having the specialists in place, making sure your insurance is right and making sure that you love whatever you want to do because you're going to be knocking doors. Some of them will shut very firmly. One or two might open, but there'll be times when if you haven't got someone that you can share that the way that you're feeling, share that um, learning, share the the good and the bad and the indifferent. Mm -hmm. Then it's 
it's a tough journey setting up a new business, unless, of course, you've been gifted a lot of money and you you want to, to put it to use by setting a new business up. Mm. That's a different scenario. Yeah. You've done a lot on your journey around change management and culture. Any top tips on how to create good culture? How to lead change? Leading Change is a brilliant book by Daryl Connor, Managing at the Speed of Change. It's a it's been around a long time that book, but it's it's got some fantastic practical tips in it um, about understanding what the change journey looks like, particularly understanding people and the way that they react through change. Um, so I think that's one thing I would say. Um, what was the last culture? Sorry, any yeah. tips on how to build culture? So you've been in some big organisations, you mentioned the co-op and 350 um, plus people. And there are various various um, scenarios, aren't there? So if you're in a tried and tested environment and you want to change culture, one of the things I've always done is used um, a set of, a suite of tools called human synergistics. They have one of the best tools for understanding. If you've been constantly changing things in the organisation, and it's not sticking. They've got a fantastic stool for a school for tool even for understanding where that change has gone wrong. Right. And is that something available on the web? Is that another book? Is that a no, no, no? It's a suite of tools. Human synergistics. You have to become. Um, I was a practitioner in it, but you can attend their courses, and you can use one of their practitioners to u- utilize that within the business. Right. So there's culture measures in there. Um, there's a huge amount of information on, on the web about it, but it, it is a fantastic suite of tools because it also runs individual um, measurement for behaviours, mm. for leaders. So you can run those tools across an individual, a department or an organisation in terms of understanding the culture, where it's going wrong, what's not sticking and perhaps pressing the levers that you can to bring about that change. Mm. The other thing in terms of culture is you set the tone from the top. So if there is something not right in your organisation with culture, turn the mirror on yourself. What is it about you? And always remember in culture that you're being watched. The minute you become a supervisor or a manager or you own the business, you park your car outside and it's one of the basic things that I always remember. I had was lucky enough to have a parking space but where I parked was right on the edge of the building and the wind was just absolutely crazy. So you had to hold on to the door to make sure it wasn't ripped off. <laughs> and when I got out of that car, I was new to the organisation and for the first couple of weeks when I walked in and said good morning to everyone, they grunted. So I'd had, well, I'd had enough of it within about three weeks and said, look, what is going on? I say good morning you lot grunt as I'm walking past you. What's the problem? Oh, well, we see the way you slam the door in the mornings when you get out of the car. So always remember you're being watched. Whatever you do, however you do it, and the interpretation in culture can be manifest if you're the, if you're the boss. Oh, so wow. set the tone from the top. I thought it was going to be because you've got the park of space in your building, <laughs> but no, they see you slam the door. Okay, we'd like to finish all our podcasts with a couple of quick fire questions. Um, what book are you reading? 
I've brought it for you to see. All right, okay. The Wisdom Network. I'm halfway through it. It's uh, an eight-step process, as it says on the front, for identify, sharing, and leveraging in individual expertise. What it does, if I read that network, that book, when I first started, as I said, mm. I would would have understand much better how to leverage that network for that um, organisation that I was trying to put together to recruit financial directors. And but it's a brilliant book. Okay. What's the best book? you've read business-wise to date? Um, What's your go-to? What's my go-to book? It's, it's going to sound really strange because it's not a business book. It's a book that was written by a survivor of Auschwitz. And it's called Man's Search for Meaning. Oh, Frankel, right? Yeah, yeah, Victor Frankel. I've got it on my to-read list, I haven't got it yet. Well, if you want to borrow it, I can loan it. Oh, no, I've bought, I have bought it. <laughs> yeah, I haven't got it, but thank you. Um, that is my go-to book. Why? Because it's not... Um, he hasn't written it in a way that you think... That, yes, there are some, some um, passages in there that you think, oh, gosh, that's, you know, that's very challenging um, from a sensitivity a reading sensitivity perspective, but it's not very much in there like that. It talks to, to about logotherapy, which is um, a purpose behind what you're thinking and how you're thinking. And sometimes when you're in, you have a busy life, you're doing things day in, day out, you don't stop to think, is there a mechanism that is forcing me down this thinking route? Have I thought about the way I'm thinking? Can I disrupt my thinking? Is there a purpose behind my thinking? And I find that very useful in that book. But it it was profound when I read that book. Fascinating. I will move it up my list. What music are you currently listening to? Oh, I love country and western. Wow, okay. What box set or TV show is a must for you? TV show has to be Strictly Come Dancing because I'm an ex-ballroom dancer. All right, okay. Another new thing we've learned about Gene Church MBE today. (laughs) Any box sets? No. No? Okay. Who is your business idol? Lord McLaurin. I don't know who would be. Ian McLaurin was the chairman of Tesco in the late 70s, 80s. Absolutely phenomenal. He, I think from, I could have been a trolley girl at a store and... I would have known exactly what my purpose was. Not just to serve my customers by making sure the trolley was there, but I knew we had to knock Sainsbury off that number one perch. And no matter who you spoke to in the business, after he'd taken over within about seven, eight months, everybody had that same mantra. Wow. Top down. like that. Has he written a book? Yes. Tiger by the Tail. I have heard of that, okay. Right, well, I just thank you for your time, Jean. Thank you for um, participating. I'll just cut, summarise the key messages I took from there. So, Jean said something, I think one or two of, our, two of our guests have said before about reflecting, understanding why you did what you did, what, what went wrong and what went well. Um, never stop learning, which is something we talk about a lot in the book. Research, if you're going into a new market, research your market was a big learning for Jean along the way. 
Um, ideas without action are worth nothing. I think um, top phrase for to take from today's talk. Um, when you ever you're interviewing, look at potential candidates and ask about their values and what they know about your values. Maybe ask new potential hires what makes them angry. Some fantastic insight, some insight there. And if you haven't already, read Man's Search for Meaning. Anything you'd like to add? Any final thoughts? Jean? No, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you very much indeed. And I guess you've now made made me wet my appetite to listen to more podcasts. Fantastic. With the first one obviously being the business secret. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you everyone for listening. Merry Christmas. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Business Secret Podcast and managed to take away some valuable tips and activities to help you in your business journey. This podcast is aimed at those about to start their self-employed life, are already well into their time as a business owner, or are interested in the business world of Wales. If you like this episode of the Business Secret Podcast, you can catch up on our other episodes available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play. Every episode is available on our website, on www.penguinwealth.com where you'll find a full transcription of each episode, useful links, and a step-by-step process on how to download and keep any episode released. You can also download your free copy of our book, The Business Secret, direct from our website. Don't forget to leave us a review and a star rating on Apple Podcasts.